There's something better. Go ahead. Try. And it's partner in crime on the show, Mr. Victor Cook. Hello. And Jennifer, unfortunately, won't be joining us this month. She's busy making angels. But if you guys miss her, check out her supernatural podcast, Abaddon's Revenge. It's terrific. So, we're here to discuss Episode 7 of the series, Catalyst, and this episode is one of my favorites, and not just because the Green Goblin is in it, but because it was firing on all cylinders. All the episodes up, up until now have been excellent, but this one is even more excellent than usual. Thank you. Hey. Yeah, the, uh, this, this episode kind of felt like it was... Um you guys kind of felt like you were finally clicking on all cylinders. Not that you guys weren't before, but it just seemed like when you get to this episode, you're through the first half of the year, and now you're kind of on the on the on the home stretch, so to speak. What is your what was your approach um, to bringing the Green Goblin in at this point and, and building that overall mystery? That's, that's addressed uh, to both of you guys. Well, I mean, bringing him in at this stage was planned from, uh, everyone still there? Yep. Hello? Uh, yeah, we're okay. here. Yeah, we're here. I heard a beeping noise, so I got nervous. <laughs> anyway, <don't> <laughs> um, um, uh, bringing Green Goblin in was planned from day one at this stage. I mean, that was always the idea that, um, you know, uh, with the benefit of spoilers now, since uh, in theory the audience has seen the series already, you know, we needed to introduce Norman Osborn first, and we needed to give him a reason, uh, both a long-term and an immediate cause, uh, to don the the green and purple. Um, so the threats that uh, Hammerhead makes uh, in the previous episode uh, are part of what generates that. And we also needed to build Harry up to the point where we could believe that he might be Green Goblin. Um, and so we uh, had to introduce the Goblin Green, and we had to introduce Harry's, you know, new athletic success and new confidence and all that sort of thing. And we needed to make Harry a viable suspect, so we have him over here, the threat to uh, his father. Um, and all that meant that, you know, it was time to bring Goblin in. This begins our third arc of the season, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, would introduce Goblin and uh, Dr. Octopus in the next episode and uh, and really build up the mystery of who is the Green Goblin, which to me, reading the original Spidey comics, 
was one of the coolest uh, things about the Green Goblin was that we didn't know who he was for the longest time. And so for us, the challenge was, well, okay, that's fine, but the mystery was cool, but how do you do it now that everyone knows that Norman Osborn is the Green Goblin? And so we had to work um, or either work hard or be sneaky or whatever you want to say to to sort of create a viable mystery when everyone knew the answer. And it was an answer that we knew we wanted to get to, but we wanted to first create a red herring large enough that people would buy into it. And we'll talk more about that problem when we get to episode nine. But we had to set all that up here. So you've got to see Harry uh, have a bad night at the prom or whatever that was. Um, fall formal. Dance. Yeah, the fall formal. And uh, and you have to see him take the lobby on green. And, and, you know, you see him with taking the green and with the purple punch covering his hands. And suddenly this guy's looking like a viable candidate. Or goblin. Club. Yeah, Globulin Green, 994. <laughs> Thank you for that little number, by the way. Yeah. Whose idea was that? <laughs> but but I'm um, back to what Zach said. At this point, it does feel like, at this point in the series, the seeds you've planted are beginning to blossom. And, uh, Vic, from your point of view, I mean, you obviously did, did a lot here. You were Greg's partner. How, what part did you play in developing the Goblin? Well, you know, the Goblin was, you know, developed actually by Steve Ditko. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. Decades ago. But uh, it was, uh, for mine, it was about, you know, supporting uh, the script and the story and trying to make this a special episode. Um, uh, it really wasn't planned for me to come in and hands-on direct this episode. It was originally uh, going to be an episode directed by, I think, Dan Fawcett, who, who directed the uh, Shocker episode. And around that time, there was some mining accident or something in Utah where he's from, and he had to uh, uh, he had to leave for a while to go back, so I just stepped in and, and directed it. Um, but from a visual point of view, uh, all along, I kind of had planned that for the Goblin episodes, we would... Um, kind of have a he would have his own color palette for nighttime so if you watch the show you know we have different we sort of have a day color sunset color night color that you see throughout the show and in episode three we did a special night color to kind of be sort of a horror movie theme for that lizard episode but in this one we kind of did sort of this purple night sky and if you watch all the goblin episodes you'll see it so we tried to make it a little special that way um, from a, uh, another behind-the-scenes production thing you might be interested in is the pumpkin heads. Uh, originally, you know, his uh, the goons that hang out with uh, work for uh, Green Goblin. The pumpkin heads weren't originally pumpkin heads; they were um, just goons, you know, regular goons. And um, but because of the production demands of the show, and uh, we were still catching up on past episodes. Uh, we needed to figure out a way to how to design everybody for this episode. So I came up with, let's just put some pumpkin heads and already design characters. And that way this guy can have an army of them if he needs it. So uh, that's what we did. You know, the uh, pump, pumpkin heads actually showed back up in uh, the comics. 
Well, oh, they really? really pump- yeah. They weren't really pumpkin heads in the comics. They were in goblin masks in the comics, but this was long after Spectacular. I mean, during the Dan Slott Superior Spider-Man run, the Green Goblin came back. He was building a crime empire, and he was gathering all the gangs. And there were times when I was reading this arc, and I had to feel in, Dan Slott watched Spectacular. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is we, you know, some things, like I said, were planned in advance as far as the visuals, like uh, the sky and some of that mood thing. The the pumpkin head goons were really uh, on the fly to sort of address a production problem, but it ended up being a great creative thing because I think it uh, gave a little bit of flair for the guys who uh, worked for the Goblin. Felt very super villainish. I enjoyed yeah. it. I mean, I don't think the Goblins ever really had henchmen like that in the comics, but it was a great addition. I mean, I know he tried to take over the gangs, and in the nineties he had the Order of Scryer, but we never actually saw them really doing his bit. Yeah, exactly. You know the the Clone Saga era better than I do. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Scryers were kind of a set of characters that um, they were. They weren't my favorite. Let's just put it that way. They weren't anybody's favorite. I I think uh, whenever, um, I think it was Roger Stern had uh, brought them kind of sort of the order, had them become the Order of the Goblin, that's when they got a little more interesting. But that was uh, only for one story. And then another another thing that uh, happened in post um, that I think made this a little bit special than other maybe (laughs) of the Goblin is uh, his bombs. We added a screaming effect, and that was kind of inspired by, I like the vocal quality of uh, Steve Bloom, and we asked the sound effects editor to find a scream that kind of sounded like Steve Bloom, and we added it to the to the bombs. I thought it turned out pretty neat. And Vic, I, I watched the episode last night again with my daughter. Yeah. But she commented on the screen, the bomb screens, and said that she loved those. <laughs> brilliant! Yeah. I mean, it was your idea. It was a brilliant touch. Yeah, I love, I loved it too. Yeah, I love them too. When I read the old comics now and a pumpkin bomb explodes, I kind of hear that scream, so thank you for that. And uh, I don't know if you know about this, but Greg, you probably remember this also. Remember the Chicago gathering, the urinals and those toilets in that hotel that sounded like the Green Goblin's pumpkin bombs? Yeah, I do remember that. It was pretty freaky. (laughs) That's weird. Okay, you're going to have to elaborate more, Bashansky. Okay, um... Okay, there were these there were urinals. Like and it was <laughs> automatic urinals. Oh. Make a noise that sounded like a pumpkin box. <laughs> yeah, we had the we we had the blue mug of guests that night. It was past midnight. You came back into the room after a bathroom break, and he said, "How many of you watched Spectacular Spider-Man? Have you seen the Green Goblin episodes? Were you using those bathrooms?" Yeah, but yeah, and I and then I think. Nikki drew you a uh, Green Goblin-shaped urinal and gave it to you. I get all sorts of fun stuff. <laughs> it's good to be the boss. But, um, yeah, that was an anecdote we just had to bring up. I couldn't let that one go because that was just too hilarious at the time, and I'll never forget that. But um, So, Vic, you said you patterned those... Goblin laughs after Steve Bloom. If we ever get Steve yeah, Bloom on, yeah. to tell I don't know if you guys remember, but early on we did a promo for Spider-Man uh, that came out about a year before the show came out. I think it was just an explosion. We hadn't cast Steve yet, but after uh, hearing him, we got, wow, I really like the... You know, so I don't know if it was like 
you know, Greg gives me credit for that, but I give Steve Bloom's voice credit for inspiring that. So that's where yeah. that's from. Yeah. Speaking of casting of the casting of Steve Bloom, I remember at the gathering before this one, you were you were already working on the show. It's, we were in Pigeon Forge. We went out to lunch, and we were and I was asking you about characters who'd cast. You didn't confirm anybody because you couldn't, obviously. And you said that you would cast Norman Osborn. And I said, "Oh, how's this Green Goblin?" And he said, "We hadn't cast Green Goblin yet." And I gave you this look like, "What the hell are you talking about?" And obviously, you didn't elaborate. And I'm glad you didn't because. I guess I was expecting the same voice actor to play both parts, and then when the episode comes out, I knew why. I had no idea you were going to do this mystery, and we already discussed the mystery, but Steve Bloom is perfect for the part. I mean, he's the voice, like Vanessa Marshall last time, that I've always kind of heard in my head without knowing what it was. Well, for me, again, what we originally tried to do for was cast one actor to play Goblin Harry Norman. And this made sense to me on a number of levels. One, obviously, we wanted to preserve the mystery in it. We had the same actor playing Goblin and either one of those guys, then you know. Um, just from looking at the cast list, who was who. So that was important. But it also made sense to me because Harry and Norman are father and son. Often my voice is very similar to my father's and brother's and so I could buy the notion that they the same actor, but we couldn't find anyone who could hit all three parts and really do all three parts. We could find guys who could do two out of the three, but no one who could quite do all three. So we decided, well, if we can't find someone to do all three, then we need, then we have to cast three different actors. And then I just think, you know, as always on the show with the help of, of course, uh, our great voice and casting director, Jamie Thomason. We just were blessed with tremendous performers. Alan Richen, Norman is fantastic. Uh, James Arnold Taylor as uh, Harry is great. And you're right, Steve Bloom is just perfect as the Green Goblin. Yeah, I'm hoping we get him on here sometime. But um, And um, let's see, Vic, here's a question for you. Describe the process of directing an episode from beginning to end in terms of hanging out board assignments. <laughs> from, beginning, and- from beginning to end? Okay, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll cut <laughs> it. sounds like a tall order there, Bershansky. Good Lord, come on, put the man on the spot. Yeah, okay, never, okay <laughs> never mind, never mind. I mean, uh, I'm a right, not an well, artist. Really, really, you read the script a couple, a few times, right? So you start seeing those pictures in your head. And then you start thinking of it uh, scene by scene um, and what you want visually to support what, what, what's there in the script. And then as you're choosing your storyboard guys, you're sort of casting them to, to those scenes. Um, for instance, in the prom scenes, those are a little bit lighter, a little bit more character moments and acting. And uh, so I wanted to cast the right storyboard guys for that. The, the stuff at the cocktail party at the beginning – um, uh, with Spider-Man being thrown out of the, the glass window, you wanted to make sure you cast the right guy who could handle that action. Uh, you know, reading that, you know, I wanted to build on what we were already doing in the show as far as choreography, where Spider-Man would like use things in the room along with his powers, kind of sort of like Hong Kong choreography. Hong Kong so that's choreography. why he's he's flipping over the 
table and use it as a shield uh, uh, from goblins' weapons. Um, incidentally, uh, uh, some trivia. Um, uh, Kevin Altieri, if you're a Batman the animated series fan, uh, freelanced, storyboarded um, on the show, the stuff at the cocktail party. And as you know, and as you know, we brought him in second season to direct uh, a few episodes. Um, so you kind of get all the staging worked out, but you're as you're doing it, you're thinking about all the other elements like color. Like I already mentioned, the thing about uh, the purple color. And then, um, you know, I'm in a position on this where I'm a producer and a director. But let's say if I'm a just the director, and you know, you have an idea if you want to switch some scenes around you need to really pass that by your producers and really make sure everyone's on board uh and even though i'm a producer on this show i'm partners with greg so we talk about that so the whole time i was working on it, i was thinking about those last two scenes and originally you know the way the show that you see ending peter mary jane dancing with the spotlight turning into the spidey mask was actually the second to the last sequence it actually ended with harry and uh and i just wanted to transpose that just so it ended on a hopeful note and plus i just wanted to do that ditko uh spidey uh spotlight every time that comes up i just i have the biggest <laughs> cheesiest grin on my face so uh and uh you know you do some thumbnails sometimes for your board guys you talk it through what you want action wise and um uh and then you build from there in the storyboard. And then um, you talk about your color ideas with the painters, and that becomes the blueprint, and it goes overseas. And then you uh, hand out to them about the kind of acting we wanted. You know, this show, we weren't trying for live-action realism, which is why you'll see some squash and stretch, even on the acting, like Jay Jonah, for instance. Um, and, uh, and hopefully it all comes uh, together with uh, uh, retakes, you know. And the whole while you're doing it, you you are really, you know, you're not trying to go off and do your own thing. It's all there to support um, the story that we're all trying to tell. And um, and then you want to top it all off with music. I edited this with Greg, and uh, we go to the sound design together. And um, uh, the composers. Uh, uh, up to this point, we're sort of building themes for each villain. And uh, I think Lolita uh, of Dynamic Music Partners came up with sort of like, let's do this sort of James Bond villain theme as the Green Goblins theme. And, uh, and so, you know, you put all that together, and that's, that's the episode you get. And it works. I mean... You know, we should also mention the great work that uh, Andrew Robinson did writing the episode. Um, you know, the whole uh, writing team, uh, including Vic, um, would get together for these story meetings. But this one presented a challenge to us because, you know, as I said, we needed to get Hen Harry Osborne. You know, Norman doesn't actually appear in this episode. Um, we need to get Harry in a position where we could believe that he would gobbling up um, and that meant that you had this whole sort of setup at the dance um, and all this stuff going on with Jay Jonah and stuff like that that's all pretty much action free you know and so we came up uh, Andrew and I came up with the idea of sort of starting in the middle starting with the battle at um, 
at the penthouse and um and then sort of saying, Okay, but we will now go back. And, you know, I remember Vic and I had a lot of discussions about how much when we caught up to where we had left off, how much of that did we need to show again? You know, how much of the dialogue did we need to hear again? How much of it did we need to show again? Um but I think it was a pretty effective way to open the show. You, you get the adrenaline, the audience's adrenaline going. We've introduced the Green Goblin, but where, is he, where did he come from? They're already fighting. Um, and then you get to play all these great beats at the dance, which some of which are hilarious, you know, um, including, you know, one of our truly classic lines where Barry Jane says, uh, um, well, if I can't dance with Peter, I'll dance with your Randy, right? And he says, very. <laughs> so, much, so much into that one word. It's so fantastic. But, uh, you know, it allowed us to play all those great character beats and all that stuff with the dance and all this wonderful stuff with Jonah at the Daily Bugle. And if we hadn't started it that way, if we hadn't opened with the action, I think it would have been really tough for us to delay, you know, if we told the story in order, we would have had to trim a lot of that stuff out because you'd just be bored, you know, and this way you weren't bored. It's fun. um, And because you already know the action's coming. Uh, And so I I think that was a, a, you know, again, something uh, that we worked out together with uh, Andrew and, and the other writers and, and uh, Andrew just really did a fantastic job on that script. He did. I agree. I, I speak to Andrew sometimes on Facebook, and at some point he'll be joining us, hopefully on group therapy. But um, it'll be fun. It'll be really fun to talk to him. But that line, it's Randy Wright, very. That's not a double entendre. <laughs> How did he get that one on the air? Uh, it is a double entendre because because again on the surface. What's the guy's name? His name's Randy. So, uh, you know, yeah, very much so. My name's Randy. Yeah, and that actually is the key to how you get away with things like that is that there's got to be a surface level that kids can understand it on that doesn't even make them go, what are they trying to say here? <laughs> you know, if the, if the only interpretation, if literally the only interpretation is dirty, then it's not a double entendre. And, and it's, impossible to get away with but and i'll admit i was still impressed that we did get away with it but um but the reason we did is because it was a true double entendre where there's a level of it that you can just take at face value and uh and it works i'd say my mind's in the gutter but let's be honest i live in the gutter (laughs) true story Yes, they they both know this, and uh, Tombstone's really cool in this episode too. There's this moment where, um, he, instead of fleeing like we would expect a villain to, he's actually helping Spidey look for the bomb, and that's a, a moment that I tend to call on this show and in other shows a David Xanatos moment. And um, thank you for writing them that way. It's nice. It's refreshing to see villains portrayed this way. Well, again, from Tombstone's point of view, he's not the villain. He's a businessman. And he's not a cowardly businessman. He's a he's a dynamic, brave businessman. He's not afraid. Doesn't like to get his hands dirty, but he's not afraid to get his hands dirty. And you know, he doesn't want to see this place blow up any more than Spider-Man does. He doesn't want to see anyone hurt. 
any more than Spider-Man does. That's not good for business. How does that help him? You know, if the Green Goblin successfully blows everybody up in this hotel, it doesn't. So, you know, if it if it works in his favor, of course he's going to do the heroic thing because he's a brave, strong, heroic guy on a bunch of levels. But, you know, he's also a, a major criminal, you know, but he's got an... Uh, He's got a uh, reputation that he preserves as L. Thompson Lincoln, some philanthropist, and a lot of the philanthropy he does is legit. It's not like every bit of philanthropy he does is a cover for something nefarious. You know, if he uh, opens the Dynamic Youth Center, it's because he wants to help kids in the neighborhoods where he grew up and had a hard time. And that's real. It's not phony. Um, but it also allows us to have that great moment of sarcastic clapping at the end where he points out to uh, Spidey that he offered to pay Spidey to help him out, and Spidey's doing it for free. And I love, I just love, you know, the, the dripping sarcasm that Kevin Michael Richardson gives the line when he says, that's what grown-ups call irony. Um, and fantastic, you know. Um, because it's like, you know, Peter can't win. He does the right thing, and he's helping Tombstone. Um, but there are a lot of great moments in the show. Um, there's the there's that fantastic moment where Green Goblin's uh, glider is about to go through, he's uh, about to hit a building, and he leaps over the building, and the glider does go through, and he lands on the other side, and 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 Josh does this great reading of that line. Okay, wow, just wow, you know. Um, I and uh, so often, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's an impressive moment. We want Spider-Man to to be impressed, to acknowledge that okay, this guy isn't just a goofball. Um, this guy isn't even, you know, at Vulture's level. This guy's a whole notch above. And we want to see that, so Spidey's impressed. Yeah, I agree. It really feels like, in a way, he met his... Not that the villains before this weren't challenges, they were, but like you said, Goblin's on a whole other level than, say, Rhino or Sandman Vulture or Shocker. Yeah, and I think that's true. He is in a whole lot. And in a sense, it kind of gets back, dovetails back to my point earlier. It feels like everything, in terms of the villainy, all the villains were kind of building towards this, because, you know, you, you get Green Goblin, you get you get uh, Doc Ock, you know, and, and later on, and, and Venom as well. So, you know, you start getting these A-list villains like Green Goblin in here, and it, it really does feel like the stakes are just a little bit higher. And I know that was by design, so. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, we uh, we built these things in art, so the first art builds through um, Vulture, even the Enforcers a bit, and... Uh, um, Electro to the Lizard, who's not an A-list visitor, villain in the sense that he's a manipulator and a mastermind the way some of our other A-listers, but he's a big deal, particularly given who he really is. And then in our second arc, you know, you go through Shocker and Sandman and Rhino, but the guy we're building to is, in fact, Tombstone. Um, and so Tombstone ends the second arc. 
And now in the third arc, you know, we're opening up with a bit of Tombstone, but really Green Goblin, and we'll bring in Doc Ock. But the idea is to, to again, always have these uh, three or four episodes arcs have a build of their own in addition to the seasonal build, in addition to the build for the entire series. Um, and if we're doing our dubs right, which I think we did, you know, you'll feel all three of those builds. In fact, there are four because there's the build within any given episode as well. So you've got the episode, you've got the, the little arc, you've got the season, and then you've got the series. Yeah, I also really like Harry's development in this episode. I mean, in a way, he's very much a fair-weather friend. The way he just blows off Gwen when he arrives at the uh, <clears throat> at the fall formal. I mean, I think we've all known people who've done that at one point or another in our lives. But um, I mean, well, I can't to be really... fair to Harry, he was under the influence of drugs at the time. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't think I, I don't think a sober Harry would have blown off Gwen, who's a good friend to him. Um, and certainly he's got some resentments, even vis-a-vis Pete, but I don't, I think you've got to understand, and, um, you know, he, he chose to take the drug, so I'm not trying to justify it, but the fact is, is that some of the things he did, he did because even before he first see him drink, while you're in green in the episode, when he's pissed off, he's already on the stuff. Um, and, so part of it is that. But, uh, yeah, you know, Harry is a, a really interesting case. And but the, the point for us was to try and make all of these characters play um, true to themselves. So Flash has his moments, and Kenny comes in and has uh, his moment, and Glory, as much as she knows Kenny is a goofball, can't resist him, and... Um, you know, we see Sally and Liz, and part of it also was us being economical with our voice actors. You know, um, you have to think about who actually gets to speak in the episode, because, for example, Liz, who never says a word, because we couldn't afford to have every actor in there. Um, but, you know, we were doing, by bringing in Gray Delisle, we get both Betty and Sally. Um, by bringing in Phil Lamar, we get both father and son Robertson um, and we just had to pick our shot as to who was it's, actually it's, it's going a, to get yeah it's another example of sort of like production forcing you to make some decisions that end up being good creative decisions later too yeah yeah I'll be honest up until this point I've never noticed that Liz doesn't speak in this episode I mean she she's in the episode she plays a part in the episode without speaking and that never occurred to me I mean it was seamless yeah, and she has a lot of great expressions, and she and Sally are very much on the same page for parts of it, and she and Flash at different parts are on the same page. So Flash is able to be a mouthpiece for Liz at one moment, and Sally is able to be it at another moment. Um, but, you know, it allows us the flexibility to bring in Cree Summer instead, you know, who then can play off of both Harry and Kenny. Um and uh, it was also fun to play MJ. I mean, we'd met MJ, but she basically had one line of dialogue um, in the previous episode. Uh, classic line, but still only one. And this allowed us to really get to know Mary Jane. Um, so one of the things that's sort of fun about Mary Jane is how um, 
poised she is, you know, how she's not thrown by Peter running off on a date, you know, during the middle of their date out. You know, she's not phased by Flash's attempt to undercut Peter. He's not phased by Sally's attempt to make her feel bad. In fact, she flips it on Sally. Um, and she's not phased by being declared queen of the dance even though she doesn't go to that school and doesn't know anybody there. Um, huh. You know, she just goes up and does it. And, you know, she has a good time. She dances with Hobie. She probably danced with, uh, we know she danced with Hobie. We know she danced with Rand. Probably danced with a couple other people as well. Um, probably Flash even. Because, uh, you know, she's not going to have, she's not going to let Pete's departure mean that she sits in the corner. That's not Mary Jane. And one of the things we wanted to do from day one with Mary Jane is return her to the character that, um, that, well, less Ditko, but more Ramita and Lee created, um, which is, you know, she was a, she was the red hot red, you know, and, um, she was smart and funny, um, and an actress and all this stuff. And, um, and we wanted to, intro, to, you know, remind the audience a little bit of that version of Mary Jane. Um, and we were also extrapolating backwards. We were trying to sort of get our, our a handle on, you know, because we didn't meet Mary Jane in the comics until Peter was in college. We, we were sort of like, okay, that's fine. But what was MJ like back in high school? Um, and we felt like we'd come up with that. And, of course, Vanessa is phenomenal as Mary Jane. You know, defines the character as far as I'm concerned. Same. But I also feel like, in a way, a lot of this might be a cover. I mean, I don't know if you were planning to bring in some of the DeFalco revelations and the Jerry Conway revelations. I mean, we learned later in the comics that MJ knew Peter was Spider-Man since the the night Uncle Ben died. (laughs) And I I, still... I got no comments. (laughs) <laughs> yes. No spoilers, no comments. I'll get it out of you okay. before this entire podcast is over. <laughs> I don't it's think you will. <laughs> oh wow, 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 wow. Um, but um, go ahead, Greg. No, no, you go, on. you go on. I'll, I'll watch. It. All right, I mean, I really like seeing John Jameson get introduced here. I mean, if and uh, Darren Norris did a great job. I mean, if I didn't see the credits, I wouldn't have known it was the same guy. And it's um, nice to see how heroic it is. And I'm looking back now, I see the seeds to his own fall being planted. But it was terrific to see him, terrific to see him play off of everybody and how proud of him Jonah is. I mean, we're really seeing more and more of Jonah's humanity as each episode progresses. Yeah, I mean, for me... Uh, Darren Norris was a real revelation in our cast. I know that sounds funny um, because we had so many great people. But, you know, Darren's ability, um, you know, Darren, uh, in addition to Josh, the, 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 Darren was the guy I kept putting up, you know, having Sony uh, put up for an Emmy Award. Um, those were the two guys. Josh, of course, because he carried the show. But Darren's work as Jonah and as and as John, uh, to a lesser extent, is stellar. And he's able to take Jonah and make you mad at him, make you 
laugh at him and make you cry for him, and he can switch those in a heartbeat. He's phenomenal. Um, and yeah, he's able to do John's voice in such a way that, um, you know, you feel like they're father and son, but you never for a moment go, well, which one's talking? You know, and that's not just about him doing another voice, though he is doing a slightly different voice for it, but it's also about just what he does with the acting and the personality. And John is a truly heroic figure when we first meet him. And yeah, you're right. Jonah loves his son and is so damn proud of him. And, um, you know, and Darren brings all that out. I mean, again, I, I also want to credit Andrew. He gave Darren some great dialogue to, to speak, but, uh, um, but Darren really does it justice. He does a phenomenal job. And Sean, I should also, you know, Cheeks' design of Jonah from day one was so amazing. And, uh, and he does a great job with John's design too. So, you know, all those things combined, art, the animation, the voice, the words, combined to give you two characters who you really feel for. Um, but Jonah does have some great moments in there. He's like, um, when we were watching it last night, Aaron was like, you know, he called Robbie. Why didn't, why isn't he calling the police? And then two seconds later, he goes, oh yeah, you should probably call the police, you know. Uh, <laughs> That's one of my and, favorite lines. <laughs> and, you know, at the end, when he wants to give credit to his son for saving the day, and his son's like, dad, don't get me involved in this, or, you know, I may get my mission scrubbed. And so Jonah's like begrudgingly saying, um, all right, credit Spider-Man. But he mumbles it. And, you, you know, and at the other end, Robbie's going, what? Spider-Man, god damn it. You know? <laughs> doesn't say god damn it. But, you know, that's the emotion. And, you know, there are great moments throughout. Like just the fact that Jonah won't pay to have a reporter sent there because he's already there and, he can write the story better than any of the reporters on his own paper. As far as he's concerned. He's too cheap to send for that. So he wants Parker there to get the photos, but he's not going to pay to send Ned Lee or, or Foswell or any of those guys out because, you know, that would cost him money when he's already there to report the story himself. And, in fact, that was part of it. Our thought was that Jono had been a reporter back in the day. Hello? Greg? Hello? Yep. Oh, okay. Okay. okay we, you just dropped off there for a second. We're like, oh, no. Anyway, uh, I was going to ask you, both to both you and Vic, uh, how long does it take the average episode to be completed from start to finish? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Greg is going to have to tell you about the script process, but after script, um, from record to the animation coming back and posting it, I want to say – Seven months, seven to eight months. And given the way that I work, which is that we basically break all the stories in advance, we, we get all the premises approved before we write a single script. Um, and that process takes some time. And then, you know, you've got the outline script, multiple drafts sometimes of each. Um, and then the voice recording. I would say the whole process, if you add in what Vic just said to that, you're talking about about 10 months. And, and by um, the way, we're not just working on one episode in eight months. It's like right. overlap city. So uh, 
we're handing yeah, out we're, we're, we're doing a show uh, a week on that show a week three weeks in a row we'd have like a week gap and then we'd do it again three in a row yeah and, and by the way that week gap isn't like a vacation it's not like, we're taking a week off. What we're saying is, is that we launched a show, you know, three out of four weeks, but those shows are all in process all the way from premise through post-production. You know, once the show is launched, it never stops working. One way or another, you're working on that show. So, for example, um, we did, we did uh, 26 episodes. So it took us about two years to do it so you heard me say seven to eight months for one episode to come be done right so what that really means is in that two years you're making the show around the eight month point now you're doing double duty because the shows you've already written and storyboarded are now you're posting those while you're still handing out new episodes you know so uh it's a lot of work um i mean i'm Greg, I, mean, I remember I was. Yeah, Greg, I remember I was. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I remember I was living in Los Angeles at the time the show was on, and my brother came out to visit me, and we had a tour of the studio. And this is right after the Sandman episode aired, but before the Rhino episode aired, and you were doing post production on this very episode. And when it aired, my brother said to me, "I had no idea they were working that still working the episodes that close to the air date." And yeah, that's air not date, normal, I, By the way, that's not normal. <laughs> that's not usual. <laughs> That's not usual. They uh, agreed to these air dates, you know, way ahead. Most studios will factor in uh, padding. So, in other words, they'll have episodes in the bank, like three or four episodes in the bank, long before they'll even air the first episode. But yeah, we were in a situation where I think our first episode came back and we posted it just in time for a WonderCon presentation. And then like it seems like within a week or so later it was on TV and episodes were coming almost a month before they would air. I mean, back from overseas. So yeah, that's not an ideal way. I mean, we were there at that, um, Sony Apple building. Once post got started, um, we were there till way into the night working with our (laughs) editors who were Bruce and Ralph, the first season and Bruce and, uh, Damon, we had a lot of takeout Thai food. I saw uh, way too much of Greg Wiseman during that time. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I mean, it it turned his hair gray. (laughs) I mean, hair turned white. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I remember it was you were doing post production on season one and pre on season two at the same at the same time, and it was a madhouse in there. There was like dozens of people yeah, screaming, and, and you know, and, you know was, we, when you had me on last talking about the lizard episode, I was talking about just the amount of work. And usually, in your develop visual development period, you would have designed at least three quarter front views of a lot of characters, but a lot of our lead time was spent just getting everybody on board to decide what the design style was. And I'm not going to rehash that, but you guys already know we uh, wanted Sean. And in the end, everybody wanted Sean, but it took us three months of, of kind of an American Idol thing to come to that conclusion. So that was all used up. So we didn't have the luxury of having stuff pre-designed before the show started. So we were chasing that all the way through. So like this episode, for instance, all those students, on the one hand, you can take a little sigh of relief, like, oh, 
they're all designed, but you know, they're all at this dance. So they're not wearing the same clothes and, um, it's all gotta be, they all gotta be redressed. Um, and like I said, that forced us to come up with a creative solution for goblins, goons. And, uh, and then when it came to the girls prom dresses, um, you know, I think that was where uh, we got a little bit of help. Sean got a little bit of help. He had done a couple passes. All the tuxedos he did were really great, and the dresses just weren't there. And one of our other directors, Jennifer Coyle, who is also a clothing designer in real life, in her sideline, uh, came up with the, the prom dresses. Um, so, yeah, we were just always chasing the production. Um, <laughs> double duty, triple duty. And there's a lot of little touches. I mean, Jonah's office is still damaged, and we won't see that in the next episode, but it was nice to see that, that continuity. And Green Goblin's collider even looks different when, he, when we see him steal it from Oscorp, and we'll never see that design again, so it was nice to see these little touches that are only going to be used for maybe a, a minute at most. At most, it's a level of detail that I like seeing. Yeah, we were really trying to keep track uh, of that from episode to episode, and... Um, um, it was a real team effort, you know, keeping those eagle eyes on that. Um, yeah, well, this also, was, in this show, you know, if you watch it, it kind of quote unquote is real time in a way, you know, it takes place over months of a school year. So unlike, you know, most, most shows in animation, it's sort of this nebulous same time of year all the time, except for that very special Christmas episode, but you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So, you're never having to change the the clothing or the backgrounds or uh, yeah you're right the very next episode if there was bomb damage in the episode before the next episode it'd be fixed already you know there'd be no gradual um, getting it fixed it's just the next episode everything's back to normal uh, yeah if you see in this episode Jonah's office is still trash yeah um, from the previous episode right um, and one little thing we did. In the previous episode, we designed this uh, um, African-American uh, elderly uh, bassoon player, I think, named Peter Parker, um, that, that Rhino, when he's looking through the phone book, finds Peter Parker and goes to his this guy's house first um, before he goes to the planet. And that scene wound up having to be cut for time. But we designed that guy. So you see him in this episode... Uh, playing some musical instrument um, at the very beginning of uh, of Tombstone's party. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's like, well, we designed that guy. There's no way he was going to go to weddings. We're going to use him. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. There you go. That guy may have even become a pumpkin head later at <laughs> some other episode. <laughs> yeah. uh, the secret of your Parker henchman. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there. Well, there you go. I mean, there's like I said, there's a lot of great touches on the show, and I, and it's nice to have you on here because I feel there's this misconception out there among fans of animation or casual animation watchers. I mean, especially when you have a show like South Park where they make the whole thing from scratch in six days. So, because I remember people were saying, I bet when this show was on, they were thinking I. It takes about six days to make an episode of South Park, so maybe it takes two weeks to a month to make an episode of Spectacular Spider-Man. I was thinking, yeah, no. No, let me break it down just a little a little bit. You know, in that eight months, six weeks of it is just storyboarding. So that's all storyboarding. We spend about two weeks timing it. 
and there's probably another couple of months of coloring it. And, you know, and there's that two weeks before storyboarding where it's being designed. And then even after the board's done, another two weeks of design. And so probably, and then uh, out of the eight months, I'd say a good three to four months of it. So half that time is actual animation overseas. Um, uh, so that's, it's not something we do in six days. Of course not. But um, there's a lot of great touches in this episode. I do like um, Kenny at the fall from her wearing a tuxedo t-shirt. That just makes me laugh every time I see it. Yeah, that's all Sean. That's all Sean Galloway right there. Nice. And um, this is probably Andrew. I don't know. But I love that Harry was going to have the after party at a restaurant called Le Hissy Fit. <laughs> Greg, was that you or was that Andrew? I, I honestly can't remember. It could have been either of us, frankly. Um, but, you know, you'd have to... I, I mean, I guess I could knock that out, but I guess I could investigate and find out by looking at... <laughs> yes, we need to know this. I'm all the various drafts of scripts, whether or not Andrew brought that board or it was something I revised. I yeah, can't just, remember. It's been yeah, it, but it's hilarious. But like I said, the episode is terrific, and um, it's one of my favorites. And thank you both very much for br- not just bringing this episode to us, bringing the whole show to us. Yeah, because, I mean, we really we really do love the show, and we appreciate all you guys' hard work. Obviously, you guys were under a time crunch, and so, you know, we um, – and hearing the – I'm one of those guys I've always liked the behind-the-scenes stories, too. As much as the story that gets shown on screen, so so, uh, I never really realized how much of a time crunch there was. Between. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a quick behind the scenes of the next Goblin episode, which is the one after the next episode, I guess. Nine show nine show. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, when you see the limping, that limping is based off <laughs> Greg Wiseman limping. <laughs> I, I filmed I filmed Greg limping uh, in our post office, and we. Uh, uh, sent that to overseas, and that's so. That's Greg. That's his limp. That, that Greg, you're you're immortalized forever limping. <laughs> yep. Did Alan Rakins have a problem with the script? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's awful, Greg. Well, before we but, let um, before we let you guys go, uh, Greg, I know you've got some books to uh, to to talk about. I always do. Yeah, I appreciate you remembering. Um, yeah, I uh, have written two novels, which hopefully your audience has already, but if not, uh, one is called Reign of the Ghosts, R-A-I-N of the Ghosts. And the second book in the series, same series, is called Spirits of Ash and Foam. I'm very proud of both these books. If you liked the stuff that I've done on Protector Spider-Man, on Gargoyles, on Young Justice, I truly think uh feel safe in saying you're going to love these books. Um, and uh, I'd very much like a chance to write the third one, so I need to get the sales up on the first two. Um, so I, you know, if your viewers are available by ebook or hard copies, you can get them on Amazon or any other book selling website, or you can go into any bookstore if they don't literally have it on the shelf at the moment you walk in the door. Um, you can go to the front desk or the information desk, and any bookstore can order it for you without a problem. Um, so please pick up those books. That'd be great. Um, uh, I've got some other projects going on, but uh, the only one that's been announced is I'm writing the first five issues of a Star Wars uh, Kanan uh, comic book for Marvel Comics. 
Uh, Which is I'm awesome. In the middle of scripting issue three, and I've just seen uh, Pepe Lars is the artist on the book, and I've just seen the first three pages of issue one that he drew, and and they're stunning. So I think the book is going to rock because um, Pepe's work is phenomenal, and uh, and hopefully I won't mess up my end of things too much. I sincerely doubt that, there, Greg. Victor, what are you, what are you working on these days? Still at the Hasbro Studios. Uh, can't say what I'm working on yet. It hasn't been announced. Um, uh, I'll be at Colorado State University uh, March 8th at the FOCO Comics Gaming Festival as a guest. Uh, if you, anybody happens to be there, drop by. Oh, I should announce also I'm going to be at Magic City Comic Con uh, January uh, 15th through 18th in Miami. So if you've got nice. listeners in Miami or in the Florida area, uh, I'll be doing all sorts of panels, including one on Spider-Man with Dan Slott um, Ooh. at Magic City Comic Con. That's, that's, that sounds like a fun panel. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Well, all right. Greg, any other final fights from you, Bishansky? That was a great episode. I loved it, and she's not here. I wish she could have been, but I remember before this episode aired, Jen knew I was a big fan of the Green Goblin, so about a half hour before it aired, we were both on the Instant Messenger, and she said, so Greg, are you excited? It's Green Goblin. I'm like, yeah, I am, but I'm also kind of half trained it. What if they screw it up? And they didn't. I mean... Oh, you have little faith. Yeah, you have little faith, yeah. I had plenty of faith. I had plenty of faith, but you never know. I mean, I've seen... Green Goblin adapted many times, sometimes better than others, and I'll keep it at that, but I love this episode, and thank you very much for everything, and thank you for coming on again. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Talk to you guys soon. All right, and um, and listeners, stick around. We'll have our fan panel up soon, and we'll be back next month with Dr. Octopus. Behind as a present for our Mr. Lincoln. Any minute now, the creme de la creme of New York City is going to paint the town red. <laughs> well, the ballroom, anyway. <laughs> 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 <laughs>